The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to The Edition. Each week we look at some of the most important and intriguing issues in the week's magazine with the writers behind them. I'm Lara Prendergast. This week, is Keir Starmer becoming irrelevant? Plus, do the Oscars really celebrate the best that film has to offer? And finally, Jordan Peterson is back with his new book, Beyond Order. But is it beyond readable? First up, Labour will almost certainly back the government in extending emergency lockdown powers next week. But why is Keir Starmer giving Boris Johnson such an easy ride? James Forsyth writes our cover story, and he joins me now together with the broadcaster and former Labour advisor Aisha Hazarika. James, in your cover piece this week, you write that Keir Starmer risks becoming an irrelevance. What do you think he's doing wrong? I think Keir Starmer's in a very difficult position because he is the leader of the opposition uh, people want to see the government succeed. Uh, the country needs the government to succeed. And so they don't want to see political point scoring. But I think the danger in his approach is that he's perhaps given the government too much of a kind of blank check on COVID pass. You know, for example, the government are going to come next week to seek the renewal of the lockdown restrictions for another three months, take you beyond June 21st, and the Coronavirus Act for another six months. And Labour will then back that. And that takes Labour out of the national conversation. I think this is the challenge. I mean, if you look at the polls, the Tories are now kind of consistently ahead. I think more worryingly for Starmer, his own ratings, which were really high in the summer, are now falling backwards. And I think that is the, the danger for him is that he just doesn't seem to be that relevant right now. Aisha, you worked as a special advisor to Harriet Harman and Ed Miliband. We've now had almost a year of Starmer. How do you think he's fared? I think he got off to a, a very good start, but, but I do agree with a, a lot of what James has said. But I think we have to take a step back and put it in a bit of context. I mean, he's not quite a year into his premiership yet. And it has been this extraordinary year. I mean, we forget that Keir Starmer has never, ever actually done a speech in a room full of Labour Party supporters. You know, he has constantly done speeches to an aide holding a phone in a in a room. You know, it's been this very, very unusual set of circumstances. And James is right. The internal polling that both the Labour Party has done and the Conservatives have done show that the public really don't like the idea of people taking lumps out of each other and playing politics on the pandemic. But I also think it is important to pay tribute to the fact that he did inherit like an absolute basket case of a party post Jeremy Corbyn, which you know was riven with anti-Semitism, incredibly um, factional and, and was really, really falling apart. So I think he has done a really, really important job of steadying that shit, which to be honest, you can't really present yourself to the public as the man when you haven't even got your own party in order. So I think his first job was very much showing the party that he was not Jeremy Corbyn and showing the public that he was not Jeremy Corbyn. He's done that very effectively, but he now has to tell a bigger story about himself to the public. And that is where I would concur with some of what James said. He he is struggling um, on that front, but there are some good reasons. 
that's similar, James, to a point that Katie makes in her piece where she says that Starmer's priority has been to repair his party rather than opposition politics. But do you think now that opposition politics should be the focus? When he suspended Jeremy Corbyn over his reaction to the report into Labour anti-Semitism, I actually thought that was a very strong demonstration of Starmer's message that the Labour Party is now under new uh, new management. But that's all got slightly, um, that's lost some of its potency because whilst Corbyn doesn't have the Labour whip in the Commons, he's still a member of the Labour Party, all that is slightly blurred. And look, I think you can say he has had internal successes. You know, there's a new Labour leader in Scotland, in Anasawa, who's a far more formidable than Richard Leonard was. You've got a, a pro-leadership majority on the NEC. These aren't small achievements, but I think that right now you would struggle to turn this into a narrative that you could tell the public about Keir Starmer and what he would do. And I think, you know, one of the big questions coming out of this pandemic is, what is the economic response? You know, I think there are two plausible economic arguments. One is essentially the Biden argument, which is that this is a moment to go really big. Building back better means, you know, means spending serious amounts of cash. The other position open to Labour is the kind of classic Blair Brown 97 position, basically try and take the uh, economy off the table by saying that, you know, you're just going to match Tory spending plans. It's completely unclear to me which, which way Starmer intends to go there. I also think some of the fights he picks, like, you know, objecting to a corporation tax rise, are a tiny bit quixotic. James, talking your piece about the next chance for the Labour leaders to oppose the government will be when Parliament votes on whether these lockdown powers should be extended. What what do you think is likely to happen? And is Starmer going to oppose the government? I, I think it's likely that Labour will support the government again. I think that, that it's surely at least worth testing the argument whether the government needs these powers all of these powers for all of this time. I I think we we have given up a huge amount of our liberties to the government. And I think think you can say that that has been necessary to handle this crisis. But I think, as we saw on Saturday night, some of these restrictions go too far. I think the the police can say that they were enforcing the the regulations that MPs have voted to put on the books by 524 votes to 16. But I really think, in a way, one of the problems with Starmer is he's not extracting concessions in exchange for Labour's support. He's not saying to the government, well, we will vote for these restrictions if you allow protest, for example. You know, part of me worries about the government taking so much power to itself and it just almost going through on the nod in the House of Commons. That just that doesn't strike me as healthy. I mean, I think in some ways, I think Keir Starmer thinks the kind of the patriotic right thing to do is to back the government in these circumstances. But part of me thinks that part of a, that part of a job of Her Majesty's loyal opposition is to oppose because you need that tension and the scrutiny that that opposition brings. James says that the Westminster system is designed to be adversarial. Do you think it's Starmer's duty to get us back to a position where we have an opposition? Well, we do have an opposition. And I suppose you have to look at the reality of the situation. You know, we had we had sort of five years of Jeremy Corbyn who argued against and railed against every single thing that, um, you know, a conservative, successive conservative prime ministers put forward. And guess what? It didn't actually change things. And... I suppose the other flaw in James' argument, like I understand, we want. I mean, I very much regret that you know we don't have a you know a punchy opposition, and it's not healthy for governments, whether they're in Westminster or indeed Holyrood, as we've just seen over the last um, few weeks. You know, where there is no healthy, credible opposition, that often results in bad government and bad public administration. But we also have to acknowledge the reality that Labour got absolutely humped at the last general election and to the victor, the spoils. And when you do have this whopping big majority, 
they can put things through. And I think one of the things that Keir Starmer is conscious about is just not looking kind of shrill and just shouting, you know, resign, resign, or oppose, oppose everything. Because we're really good at the Labour Party's brilliant at, at, at doing that. And is you know, we've, there's no shortage of, of, of decades of Labour just shouting, you know, we oppose everything. And I think when it comes to the coronavirus legislation, I think the Labour Party, it would look really weird if right now the Labour Party suddenly went, right, we're just going to oppose everything for the sake of being in opposition. I think they have made the difficult, but ultimately that morally the right call by saying we are going to back the government in terms of if they feel they they need this to do the right thing, then we have to sort of get behind them. And I don't think like a sudden Damascene conversion to sort of like allying themselves with Steve Baker is going to make people go, ooh, I'll tell you what, Keir Starmer's got a lot of backbone now. I, I don't think it's, I think, I, I'm not suggesting a total vote for us, what I'm suggesting is, is proper scrutiny. I think you look at the reaction of people on Saturday night when the Metropolitan Police went in and broke up that vigil. I don't. I think people were shocked by that behaviour. But the problem is when the Metropolitan Police say, well, this is what the, the rules allow us to do, they are right. And I think that is a sign of what happens when the two main parties agree on things and there isn't sufficient scrutiny. I also would argue that we are in a different situation now. Over 25 million people in this country have been vaccinated. We know that these vaccinations are highly effective at preventing hospitalisation and death. They are 70% effective at stopping transmission, which is more effective than we previously thought. We are obviously not out of the COVID woods yet, but we are not in the same emergency situation that we were in last March or even in last December. I think that some of that responsibility on the opposition to to just get behind the government has gone because we are now in a in a debate about and it's now a debate about how quickly or or what the right priorities are for the easing of restrictions. And I think that there is a legitimate role for the opposition to get involved in that. When we were facing a situation where we were very possibly that the entire health service was going to be overwhelmed. I think it was a perfectly legitimate point to say that was not the time for the opposition to say well we actually want another half an hour please to read subsection four and we'd like to divide the house on it i think we are now in very different circumstances and getting back to proper parliamentary scrutiny which is something that is is doesn't happen when the government has these emergency powers it is actually a, a very necessary and healthy thing for our democracy well, I would absolutely agree with that. I think parliamentary scrutiny and as much debate and accountability is absolutely vital to functioning democracy. But let's just go back to what happened on Saturday night. I think a lot of people were absolutely dismayed at that, particularly women who have been part of the women's movement, who have been fighting for better outcomes for women in terms of the criminal justice system. This was a really bad miscalculation by the Metropolitan Police, which many women feel is institutionally misogynistic and many black and Asian people feel is institutionally racist, as Nick McPherson famously said in the his inquiry into the Stephen Lawrence um, murder. So I'm just very wary of conflating this with a discussion about the, the about Keir Starmer and the opposition. And also I'm very um, it makes me feel slightly squeamish that there are certain people who have suddenly leapt upon this Clapham Common debacle and they're no friends of sort of the feminist movement and it does feel like they're slightly weaponizing it to suit their own anti-lockdown argument, which is why, for example, Piers Corbyn was alleged to have sort of turned up. There were a lot of kind of anti-masker men at, at this thing. So I think we just have to be quite careful about conflating 
everything together. I think the Metropolitan Police handle things really, really badly on Saturday night. That does not ergo mean that there is no opposition. In terms of going forward, look, James, you're right. The vaccine is rolling out really, really well in this country, particularly absolutely stunning in the UK. However, I mean, you know, for once I find myself agreeing with Matt Hancock, you know, you've, you've got to ease every bit of the restrictions in, I think, quite a kind of safe way. They want to make sure that each... We've literally just had schools come back. We need to wait and see what the granular data says. Then hopefully we'll hit that next milestone and the big one being the 12th of, of April when we can start easing things back. I don't see why the Labour Party should now just sort of suddenly be like, OK, we're not going to listen to the scientific experts. We're not going to be driven by the data. We just want to sort of oppose this for the sake of opposing it. I do hear your point about more people coming back to Parliament. I do think it has been very difficult to get proper scrutiny done in Parliament in terms of um, a lot of the, the, the legislation. But I am just I, I just feel it's a bit tenuous for me to just link what happened on Saturday night at Clapham Common with Keir Starmer being crap. I don't think most MPs, when they voted for those restrictions on the 6th of January, envisaged that they would be used in these circumstances. And I think that is the problem with very, very broad powers being handed over to the police and other agents of the state. And I think one of the mistakes that MPs make is I think they they feel that they can hand these powers over, but then almost determine how they're used operationally. They can't. I just wonder whether if you had had more debate and more scrutiny, and that had been a tighter vote than 524 to 16, whether someone might have said, well, hang on a second, you know, I'm prepared to vote with the government on this, but we need to make provision for protest, especially given that we, that we saw the same issue about protest during the first lockdown with the Black Lives Matter process. I, I, mean, this is- I feel that's a bit Captain Hindsight in the to quote Keir Starmer or the attack against Keir Starmer. Because look, you know, it's interesting, isn't it? Because the the truth is, this clap a Saturday night, which we seem to be focusing a lot on, could have been avoided if the Metropolitan Police had engaged sufficiently and in good faith with the organisers. What's interesting about Saturday night is that a bunch of women played by the rules and said they were going to organise a, a vigil and they wanted to do it properly. The police then refused to engage with them. The whole thing got cancelled and the whole thing ended up as a rammy. Go to the weekend before when Rangers fans go out in Glasgow in George Square. No speaking to the police. It's just a bunch of blokes getting out the cans and going out to celebrate. And they don't play by the rules and the police don't anticipate it, even though anyone with half a brain would have known that Rangers fans were going to go out and celebrate that night. So I just think that, yes, these, you know, the even the police at the time said... That and I, and I I actually interviewed people on my kind of radio show. Police were saying, look, we are a bit nervous that some of the guidance... And this was, by the way, around all the lockdown measures, even last year when people were having their like shopping bags searched because the police were like unclear about how specific the guidance was and how much was being left up to their own interpretation. But I just feel that what we saw on Saturday night, I'm afraid blame does really lie fair and square I mean, there are different interpretations of of what happened, but I think there is a general view that what went wrong was down to the fact that the Metropolitan Police spectacularly mishandled this. I will blame MPs for many, many things. I mean, I don't think Keir Starmer has got everything at all perfect, but I just don't feel like it's MPs' faults 
or it's Keir Starmer's fault that everything went so badly wrong on Saturday night. I do think that is down to the Metropolitan Police. Thank you, James and Aisha. Next, the Oscars are desperately trying to appear more diverse, and this year it comes with the added challenge of hosting a show in a global pandemic. In this week's magazine, the writer Fiona Mountford says she'll miss the annual awards season, while the Spectator's arts editor, Igor Toroni Lalich, says they keep ignoring great films. Fiona and Igor join me now. Fiona, in this week's magazine, you say that you're missing the traditional film awards season. What is it that you like about it so much? Look, I'm no great apologist for the Oscars shortlist, the BAFTA shortlist, any shortlist per se. What I think they do is provide a really useful focal point for interested punters, for everybody to focus on the art forming question, in this case films, but same would go for the Booker Prize for books and so on. I think it's it's a moment for that art form to be in the spotlight, to get people watching, thinking, talking, for it to have its moment. That's why I like shortlists for films. Eagle, you've also written about the Oscars in this week's magazine um, and you say that the Oscars have somewhat lost their way. So are you, are you not missing the award season this year? No, I, I totally ignore it every year. I have no interest in it. I think probably most people don't really. I mean, they, they just don't seem to be any good at choosing great cinema. This is my real problem. And what's the point of an award that that basically misses out on anyone who's actually good at making film? I mean, it, it, the list of people that they've they failed to give the Oscars to is not just, you know, as we all know, the rest of the world that makes film, but also Hitchcock, Kubrick, Cirque, you know, the great Hawks, the great American directors. What is the point of the Oscars if it cannot recognise good cinema? What's the point? Fiona, do you agree that they're no good at choosing great cinema? (laughs) Igor has a point there, of course, but I think a lot of the directors he names in his piece, they are are not from the Anglophone world. And I think the fact the Oscars don't recognise such people is simply symptomatic of the overwhelming arrogance of the Anglophone world per se. I mean, how many novels in translation do we as a culture tend to read? How much subtitled television drama do we tend to watch? I think berating the Oscars alone for this kind of cultural imperialism is unfair. But it, but it resides, the poison starts there, the cancer starts there. I mean, they claim to be the, I mean, they say on their website, the highest honours in filmmaking, not the highest honours in American cinema. This is their claim, right? And last year, for the first time, they gave it to a foreign language film, the first ever foreign language film to deserve the highest honours in filmmaking. Are you kidding me? I mean, the, the whole culture of, of England and America has no concept that, you know, cinema is a foreign thing. The, the French invented it. It's got nothing to do with us. You know, uh, the, the rest of the world do much better than us. The Oscars can claim what they want for themselves. That's up to them. It's up to all of us to agree or disagree, isn't it? And yes, it's of course it's absurd that Parasite last year was the first foreign language film to win Best Oscar. However, I would say it's equally, if not slightly more absurd, that in the Oscars' 93-year history, only five women before this year, only five women ever have been nominated for Best Director and only one has won. So I don't think we can say the Oscars are brilliantly representative of everything they should be representative of. There are other film award ceremonies, the BAFTAs, for example. Look at the BAFTA shortlist this year. Really splendid, splendidly representative. The BAFTA shortlist, 
last week flagged up to me the film Rocks, the British film Rocks, which I hadn't to my discredit seen, and it prompted me to watch it. What a terrific film. So glad I saw that, and I've been recommending it to everybody I know. So that's where I think shortlists focus the attention and get people think, I haven't seen that. Everyone's talking about it. Let's see what it's all about. It's it's kind of crazy that we've come to this past this this um situation where we aren't talking about aesthetics because if you if you just followed your aesthetic nose from the start of cinema, the Oscars would have been as diverse as anything because the greatest cinema is not made predominantly by white men. It's made by the world. And if they just focused on aesthetics, you wouldn't have to have this absurd, disgusting, patronising quota system where suddenly we discover women have made cinema. And none of the other great film festivals would do this because they realise that the rest of the world makes cinema. Agnes Varda won in 1960s. Uh, uh, in the Berlin Army. Sure, but I don't think we can say the other festivals, by all means, but I don't think we can say the other festivals have been in the vanguard of the feminist movement, have they? I really, I really don't think they've they've been nominating an equal, well, roughly 50% women or anything like that. The BAFTAs certainly haven't. Uh, so I think, you know, for, to get change done, as we all know, not just in the cultural sphere, in every sphere, sometimes you need the pendulum to swing possibly a little bit too far one way and then there will be an inevitable correction somewhere but I think it's good that the Oscars have belatedly discovered women and people of colour and the rest of the world it is long overdue but at least they're doing it now it's so embarrassing I mean that they discovered people of colour discovered women they don't need to do this uh, if they if they understood well, they what, did, though, what good they? cinema is and they don't know what good cinema is this is the problem they'll never understand it so even the women and the people of colour that they've nominated are lousy. The worst filmmakers around today are those that they have nominated. Chloe Zhao is lousy. These are... No, Barry Jenkins is a fucking disgrace of a filmmaker. He should never have won an Oscar. I disagree with you. I think... 12 Years a Slave was a disgrace of a film. Absolute disgrace I think Nomadland is a splendid film. I have actually seen Nomadland now. It's a splendid film. It'll be a worthy winner. Middlebrow nonsense. then I would say one of many Oscar's many problems is traditionally tends to be that the quieter, softer, more family-focused films, dare one say the more female-focused films, also tend to get overlooked. The Farewell, directed by Lulu Wang in 2019, for example. This year, the abortion drama. Imagine the Oscars nominating an abortion drama. Never, rarely, sometimes, always, directed by Eliza Hitman. By all means, there's things the Oscars don't look at. I would disagree with you about the merits of Nomadland, though. <laughs> Fiona, obviously this year people haven't really been able to go to the cinema and, and probably watch a lot of these films. Do you think that's going to change the nature of the Oscars this year? I'm not, I don't think it'll change the nature of the Oscars, the, the, the Oscars themselves, because as Igor has rightly pointed out, they're, they're terribly, they're full of self-love and puffed up. So they will get on with their own business. What I think it will change is the cultural discourse around the Oscars, the general level of chatter, of public awareness, engagement, getting on the tube, for example, in London, seeing all the posters, the film posters out this week and so on. There'll be none of that. None of the films are available. Uh, not, I say none. A lot of the big films are not available for people to see. And so I think there will be a muted, a muted feel to awards season this year because nearly everybody won't have been able to see nearly all of the films. Uh, so it just won't be at the level of chatter that there normally is. 
And Eagle, finally, Fiona obviously says that she uses the award season list as a sort of guide to what to watch. What, what do you use as a guide to decide what you want to watch if you have to whittle things down? Well, I've, I've mainly been watching old films. I mean, uh, I, there's a lot of films that I haven't seen, so I've been using this time to sort of catch up on everything that, that is considered great, that, you know, certain directors. I mean, like most people, I think everyone's just torrenting. Everyone's just illegally downloading stuff. I mean, that's how I saw Nomadland. You can see the Oscars immediately at the click of a button. I mean, th- this idea that somehow, that, you know, they're locked away and you can't see them because there's no cinemas is, is absurd. No one watches films on cinema in cinemas anyway. You know, it's fine. I think they do. And I, can I say I didn't illegally download Nomadland. I managed to get hold of a BAFTA screen. I wouldn't <laughs> have a clue how to illegally download a film and I wouldn't try. So I think the people I know do actually in normal times go to the cinema and... Uh, and like seeing it on the big screen. So that's been a loss this year. That has been a loss. And Nomadland is going to be made available the four days after the Oscar ceremony. It'll be available streaming on Disney+. Plus. And, and then they're hoping for a cinema release when the cinemas reopen in mid-May. But again, that, that, that impact, the momentum of, of the release being the exact time of the Oscars will be lost. But I think if you look at you know, other awards... That, that's how to get good cinema. Forget the Oscars. Forget the BAFTAs, for Christ's sakes. Wor- worse than the Oscars. Absolutely parochial rubbish. You go to the Venice Festival, <laughs> go to Cannes, go to the Berlinale. I don't think you can say... Forget the Anglosphere. They don't know what cinema is. They have no clue. Forget it. Forget American cinema. Forget British cinema. Total rubbish. Trash. Complete trash. It's lucky I didn't wear my Chloe Chow T-shirt for this discussion. <laughs> Fiona and Igor, thank you very much for joining us. And finally, the Canadian psychologist, author and YouTube sensation Jordan Peterson has a new book out, Beyond Order. It's reviewed in this week's books pages by the novelist Philip Hencher, who says it is, in his words, pretty odd. To explain, Philip joins me now, along with The Spectator's associate editor, Douglas Murray, who has interviewed Peterson and joined him on his live tour in 2018. Philip, for this week's magazine, you've reviewed Jordan Peterson's new book, Beyond Order. Can you tell us what you thought of it? Well, I think it's a very odd book, actually. And I think it um, doesn't really do what it seems to be assuming that it'll do. It looks like a self-help book that you're going to uh, take up and think, this is the way that I'm going to improve my my life. And... uh, (laughs) In fact, I think it boils down really to a quite a lengthy Jeremiah against um, some um, some tendencies in um, modern society. Whether they're real tendencies or whether they're just kind of noisy tendencies on on Twitter, I'm I'm not so sure. It, it seems like the sort of book that I can imagine people buying in order to confirm what they thought already, rather than to you know to bring about any kind of major improvement. Douglas, you you know Jordan Peterson, and, and and in Philip's review, he says that not only does he write badly, he relies too heavily on evidence from Harry Potter and Disney films, and is fairly humorless. Do you think he's being unfair? Well, I should start by caveating that I haven't finished uh, Jordan's new book yet. Uh, he sent it to me, but I haven't yet finished it. I read its predecessor, 12 Rules for Life, when it came out. And I've read currently most of, of Beyond Order. I think several things I'd say. The first is that a lot of people would say that Jordan Peterson's prose and his books are, despite having been enormous bestsellers and much more, are not his strongest suit. 
that he gets the audience he gets, he has the following he has, not actually because of his books, people come to him and then buy the books, but actually because of his YouTube lectures, because of his interviews and much more. And I think that is true. I, I think that in some ways the books are a sort of byproduct of that. And of course, when a book sells as extraordinarily well as 12 Rules for Life did, it's an inevitability of the publishing industry, as Philip well knows, uh, that the publisher wants the same again. My feeling is is that 12 More Rules for Life, Beyond Order, isn't actually uh, um, the first book again. It's a mix of several different books, several things that I think Jordan would like to write. And it is the book it is as a result, a slight mishmash of things. I don't think that it is a book that particularly you would go to simply for life advice. But then I think that's uh, an accident of the publisher's packaging, apart from anything else. Uh, the one thing I would, would say about this is that what's interesting about Philip's review, apart from anything else, is that like uh, Lucy Calloway's review of it in the Financial Times, it does at least try to grapple with what Jordan Peterson is. And uh, that's quite interesting because until now... It's been very commonplace for reviewers who, for instance, if they don't like Jordan Peterson, uh, to sort of launch at a a version of him. And I would say at least Philip, uh, like uh, Callaway, does actually try to grapple with this bigger question, which is the one I think is most interesting of all, which is not whether you particularly like this book or think it's better or worse than its predecessor, but what is it about Jordan Peterson that means he has had and continues to have the impact that he does? And it seems to me, and has always seemed to me, that that's the question that people have ducked, but is the most interesting question. Yes, I think I think I, I agree with the, a lot of that. And I think the frustrating thing for me reading this um, book is that um, I really ought to agree with... Well, I do agree with a lot of what I know he stands for. I think that the version of him that has led to people trying to cancel him and shout at him on university campuses is absolutely extraordinary. And the idea that this book shouldn't be published is so far from what I think or would ever think and what I think anybody would ever think. And yet... You know, when it was announced that this book was uh, being published, people employed by his publisher in Canada held a town hall meeting. They burst into tears saying that their friends um, would, would, would find it terribly difficult to understand. Well, where are we with that, really? So the point is, really, <laughs> that I'm in this slightly kind of strange position of not thinking very much of the, the book, but feeling that um, um, it's absolutely disgraceful that people are trying to, um, to stop it being can- published, which they undoubtedly are. And Douglas, what what would you sort of summarise as being Jordan Peterson's main message, and and why do you think it has proven to be so controversial? Well, I think it's I think what he says has proven to be controversial because the age is insane, and anybody saying sensible things has a mob of deranged ignoramuses going after them. So uh, there's nothing surprising that if you say something that's commonsensical, even something like, uh, as he says, you know, he says it in this book, he said it in the previous one, focus on one thing and work really hard at it and see what happens is a good lesson for starting off in life. 
concentrate on something, work really hard at it, and you may get rewarded as a result. That's different from the general mood music of the era, which is, you know, be yourself as much as possible, whatever that self is. Don't bother to garb yourself in anything that the past might be offering you and become the wonderful sort of unicorn magic fairy person of our time that everyone's meant to seek to be and then if you don't get whatever you want having not done anything you can blame someone else or something else for that I mean that's basically anyone who who, who resists that will come in for a certain amount of flack and most of what he says is rooted in, uh, um, as Philip notes, I mean, you know, some fairly standard, uh, as we would have thought of them as sort of basically Protestant values of hard work and loyalty and reward for work well done and much more. And th- these were, in, in most of our lifetimes, were perfectly reasonable standard pieces of advice that your parents and others would give to you. Now, he gives that advice, and the fact that he has the the appeal that he has is in part because, as I've said elsewhere, there is a dearth of father-like figures at the moment. There is a dearth of people who are willing to stand over the confused population's bodies and say, you don't have to do this. This is how you could live. You, You could have these virtues. You don't have to do the things that you're being encouraged to do. There, there is a dearth of wise uncle figures in our societies, just willing to, to, you know, tell you to pull up a chair, have a drink, and let me explain to you how the world really works. There is a deficit of such people. But Douglas, do you, I, I mean, reading this book, I found it very difficult to believe that the people bursting into tears at town hall meeting were going to um, object to the idea that... Um, you should make one room in your house beautiful or that you should work so hard. It seems to me that, um, I mean, it's quite difficult to extract any rational sense from the people bursting into tears at the mention of Jordan Peterson's name. But it seems to me that what they really object to is the sort of folk memory that he objected to the law in Canada that would have made it illegal not to say Z of transgender people, or that interview with uh, uh, Kathy Newman where he said um, sometimes women don't get to the top because they don't want to get to the top, you know. And those sort of things are very offensive. But this book, is clearly... I mean, there were some things that... Um, offended me in it, uh, largely his uh, his reliance on the works of J.R. Tolkien to prove any kind of point at all. But I can't really see that anybody that read it would really kind of pick a fight. He sounds like a sort of um, Presbyterian minister, and that's that's about as far as it goes. So it is mysterious, I think. I, th- I think it goes further than that. Uh, I-, I think that if he were so- simply, and I've, I've said this at uh, events with him in the past, that, I mean, if, if he were simply a sort of revivalist minister, he wouldn't have this following. An interesting question is, what is it about him and what he is saying that is clearly so different from the at least thousands of people who do preach a sort of revivalist Presbyterian message, for instance. There must be something different he's doing. It can't be only presentational or only because the world has been waiting for somebody from the greater Toronto area to be the <laughs> one. It has to be something else. And exactly what it is is is, is an interesting question. But I think to, to your question about what it is that makes the, the wailing and gnashing of teeth 
of the sort of junior employees at a publishing house who fear, as you note in your review, that fear that their non-binary friend might not be completely keen on this book. I think it's I think what it has become has been that Jordan, um, and there are another number of other people you might put in this bracket as well, but Jordan in particular has become a sort of a figure onto which these young activists can project all of their fears. Yes. And he is the person who will lead to their trans friend if their trans friend exists, and most of the time they don't, they're just being used as a cudgel, their trans friend to be killed. Um, He is the person who will lead themselves, if they're a woman, or their female friends, if they're a man, to be sold into um, sex slavery to a husband. I mean, it is it literally claims like this that they make. Mm. And, and that, that, in a way, is less Jordan's problem than, again, the thing of the era of what is it about this, this attempt to project the, the need for people to say things that they're not even saying? It is very odd. And I do think it's a generational shift that we're witnessing. I, I always think of it as what happened in the 1840s when suddenly all those um, Regency rakes like Lord Melbourne were still hanging around and coming across a generation of ferocious evangelicals. I mean, at the moment, for someone like me, I'm 55, I'm, I'm gay, and if somebody shouted faggot at me in the street or said something homophobic to me, then I think the worst thing that I would do is uh, maybe decide not to uh, have dinner with them in future. <laughs> I don't think I would. it would cross my mind to uh, call the police and, or, you know, mount a campaign. Or, uh, it's, and it's, it's very odd, really. I think it's a, a very odd shift of sensibility. And the oddest aspect of it is that it's not, in large part, uh, defending oneself personally, but actually getting outraged on behalf of some other group that mm. uh, doesn't seem yes. to be doesn't seem to be you know bear any relation to the speaker at all. Yes, th- that that's right. I should say, by the way, that one of the aspects of this book, as Philip knows, that, that is is. Um, Jordan does in the opening explain his personal story of recent years and in some ways it's the most interesting part of the book to me something that I've read um, because it is an extraordinarily harrowing and awful story I haven't uh, sort of have known most of it already but uh, I think a lot of his readers will want to know it and the fact that this book which is about uh, packaged as a sort of self-help book opens with a description of of what hell the author himself has personally gone through is quite interesting and itself yields something up which is ordinarily if somebody who was who 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 had become famous by giving people advice had himself fallen into such a pit of despair and horror people would walk away and say and this goes back to Philip you know evangelical sort of past the point is ordinarily they would say that person has demonstrated that they don't do it or can't do it and therefore I will walk away from his teachings and his learnings and this is what's one of the interesting things about this book is it has it doesn't do that it doesn't cause it seems the reader to do that the sales figures already demonstrate people haven't left Jordan Peterson's writings because he's had this harrowing period 
they would do that, I think, if this was an evangelical pastor who had, had said to people, you should do this, had then been through a similar sort of veil of tears. So one of the interesting things is it's clear that people want to stick with him and learn from him, whether he's going through good times or bad times, whether he himself is at a career peak, as he was in recent years when he became perhaps the world's most influential academic, albeit one you couldn't cite in any, any academic paper, or whether he's gone through the hell of recent years. And this also seems to be, this goes back to my point about the father figure-like thing, the, the, the cool uncle. You want to know, it seems, if you're his readers, you want to know what could happen to you as well, and that it isn't just the case you can sometimes win or sometimes lose. It's not a sort of, you know, losers and winners game, but actually all much more complex than that. And that good people with the best of intentions and all the right set up and the best family matter, you can still go through hell. There's something interesting in that. It's, it's interesting. It is interesting. Those are the points at which I started to feel that he was um, rather close in a in a weird way to the uh, to the kind of Oprah Winfrey learning experience um, culture in North America. It kind of felt as though. He wasn't going to do the the European thing of of saying, "Well, yes, you got me bang to rights." You know, it's it has been an absolute disaster. Let's not talk about it, but let let's sit down instead. Let's sit down and work through it. See what we can learn from this experience. And um, I I must say that I can't be alone in finding it <laughs> that's a, a slightly kind of insufferable <laughs> approach. But uh, that's that's probably just me. <laughs> Thank you, Douglas and Philip. And that's everything. If you've enjoyed the podcast, why not pick up a copy of the magazine? You can read all the pieces featured on the show and much more. We have a diary from Richard Maidley, Melanie McDonough writing in defence of travellers, and Mary Wakefield, who interviews Professor Tim Spector. Thank you for listening, and do join us again next week. The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher.